0: We're going to be in the book of Romans. We're going to be wrapping this thing up today. All right, Romans chapter sixteen, verses seventeen through twenty through twenty seven. Let me read the passage to us, and then we're going to dig in. Romans sixteen, verses seventeen through twenty seven. The end of the book of Romans. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Can we just pause? I don't want to read that one to you again. I, 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 when I, that's such a great verse. You ready for us? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, that's a great Bible verse for you. We're going to get into that one in a bit. Okay. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then he gets to some people who helped him write this. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And so Paul was speaking to a guy named Tertius what he wanted him to write down, and Tertius wrote it down with his own hands. So it's his handwriting in the original letter. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today we wrap up what has been the better part of a two-year journey through the book of Romans. Two years. Now we've taken some breaks throughout because of a little thing called COVID and some other things that happened along the way to focus in on some specifics that we needed to get into to encourage our hearts, to challenge us. I'm going to move this a little bit out of the way, Mondesa, so that everyone can see over there. Uh, and we took a break for a little bit, but frankly, it's been the better part of Two years. And we've been through a lot over these two years. Let me read to you uh, from Martin Luther, summarizing this book. Martin Luther, the great reformer, summarizing the book of Romans. The epistle, this letter, this epistle, is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, talk about old school preaching, should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day. as the daily bread of the soul it can never be read or pondered too much and the more it is dealt with the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes this book of Romans we've studied is a significant part of the Christian faith and I think God's timing has been very sweet to us because, frankly, over the last two years, we've been through a lot together as a family. Let me just rehash some things we've gone through together as we've been studying this book of Romans together. Just, it, it's good to reflect. One of the things I love about my wife, she writes journals every day, and then from time to time, she'll open up old journals from years ago, and she'll look at what happened on this date eight years ago, ten years ago, and it's good for the soul to remember, oh, that's right, this is what we've been through. This is how God's responded to us. Let's think of the last two years. We've gone through a lot. We've learned how to do church at home. <laughs> remember, we had we, for the first two months of COVID, this wasn't happening. For the first two months, we weren't sure what to do, and we were just doing everything online. Everyone was at home. I remember those first few days of COVID. Remember, everyone was buying toilet paper. They were afraid that all the shops were going to close down. I thought Jesus was about ready to return any second. Maybe he is. I don't know. We've learned how to gather and offer live services. We've never done this before. This is new for us at, at Park South Loop. We've never done live services until now. We've been through protests, Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, conversations on race, amplified conversations on race. We've been been in those conversations for many years as a church, but they've been amplified specifically as we're Park South Loop, right? Remember the riots that took place were on our streets in the neighborhoods. We've been through riots and protests. We've been through a tumultuous election. No matter where you fall in the political sphere, you've been in this nation along with me. We were all in that one together. We've been through an insurrection at the Capitol. I mean, we've been through a lot. Not to mention the pain that many of you have experienced because of the secondary effects of COVID. COVID is dangerous to health. Many of you have gone through loneliness, depression, loss of loved ones and neighbors, right? We've we've been here. And, And God's kindness, He's led us through this whole journey with the book of Romans open. Now here's what I want to make sure we do. We, I want to train you to be students of God's word so that the word of God is not just something that you keep going through and you never, you never gradually increase or improve in your knowledge. This should not just be a thing where you, know, you just get stuck in a rut and it's the same thing over and over and over. The same general basic tenets of the faith and you kind of just go through all of life without ever really growing the book of Romans, we should constantly be growing and adding to our knowledge, adding to our base, and maturing, not just feeding off the baby food of the Christian faith, but maturing in our knowledge of God. And the book of Romans, more than any other book in the Bible, is this systematic overview of so many of the nuances and details of the faith. There was a great philosopher named Charles Taylor. He wrote a very important book called The Secular Age. Uh, if ever you want to spend a year of your life trying to read philosophy, <laughs> it's a big book called The Secular Age. And he, he tries to draw out how we shifted from kind of a medieval, uh, Christocentric, or at least theocentric worldview that dictated our life to our new secular age, which dominates society. And he uses these two fancy words, but I'll explain them to you. He says, basically, we had a worldview shift from a mimetic worldview to a poietic worldview. From mimetic to poetic and underneath mimetic worldview it was a worldview that was based on something there we found our identity ourselves our importance what we were all about as we found ourselves wrapped up into a much grander story That's a mimetic worldview. Our identities, who we are, what's important to us, what we think we need to share with other people, what what we need in this world. A mimetic worldview, what has always been true of history, says we find that value structure as we find ourselves tied into a greater story. For the Christian, it's the story of the Bible, of what Jesus is doing in the world. He said, but there was a shift that took place in culture, which explains so much of the world we're living in. Why human beings have to find their identity in the approval of other people, affirming their personal decisions in life. How did we get to this place? He says, there was a shift to a poetic worldview where no longer was the grand meta narrative assumed. Rather, the the grand meditative narrative, frankly, was that there was no meta narrative. That we were here by chance, it's pure chaos, therefore each of us find our value and worth and identity and meaning and what is substance in our life based on what we determine it ought to be. Each of us are our own little gods, in other words. And that defines the secular age. What's the meaning of my life? What am I here for? What am I doing? Where am I going? What, What am I supposed to be doing? I can create that. That's out there. And if you're wondering, trying to interpret the times and you're reading the news and looking at commercials and billboards and messages, if you just think about what I told you, that's it. Be your own God. The Christian and what I try to train you every day of my life, my passion, is to root you in the doctrines of God so that you won't get suckered for lies that don't give you life so that you will find the life that is really life underneath the great story of Jesus Christ and his kingship. Because right now, whether we believe it or not, he's sitting on the throne ruling and reigning. And as a Christian, you need to handle the word of truth well. You need to soak in the doctrines of God so that you know what is right, you know what is wrong. You can hear a billboard or a commercial and say, I know it sounds good, it's not right. And here's why it's not right. Because the doctrine of total depravity, I've learned that one. I've been trained up. I know what to do with this thing. That's what Romans helps us get after. So, as we bring this book to a close, my hope is to try to seal this book in your hearts. It's a lifetime of study. We're going to go back to this hopefully a hundred times in your lifetime. But I want to try to seal this. What, what's the ground we've covered in the book of Romans so that we can really finish this well before moving to a new series? Paul closes out this section. I'm going to break it into three kind of easy bits for you. Three final exhortations from the writer Paul to us as we close the book of Romans. Exhortation number one. Beware of dividers and dissenters. Beware of dividers and dissenters. He, he, he basically begins this last section by saying, look out among yourselves, see the people that are speaking into the life, and if someone's trying to divide or dissent, you avoid them at all costs. You don't have to coddle up to them, you don't have to even be kind, you just avoid them. Listen, Romans 16, 17 to 18, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, I think we need to define a little bit who he's talking about. I think there's a bit of a general sense and then also a more specific sense to this idea of dividers and dissenters and what we're trying to avoid and look out for. The Bible repeatedly warns us not to to be the kinds of people that cause division and dissension. Let me quote just two important passages from Proverbs chapter 6, very famous passage, verses 16 and 19. There are six things that the Lord detests, that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Here's the seven. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and, here's the last one, Ready? One who sows discord among brothers. One of the seven abominations before the Lord listed in Proverbs chapter 6. One who sows discord among brothers. Remember how much Paul has used the language of brothers and sisters in this book? It's about family the whole time, it's the family of God. Titus chapter 3, 10 to 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. I think there's a general sense and a specific sense. We're talking about dividers and dissenters. In a general sense, when you find people that are constantly stirring up division, constantly, somehow, you don't know why, but there tends to be this pattern in their life that wherever they go, there's division among them, particularly among God's people within the church. You warn them, you warn them a second time, and then they're not permitted anymore. Now we live in a culture and we live in a time where we are very sensitive to people's very personal needs and feelings and emotions. It goes back to the mimetic poetic worldview, actually, to be honest with you. Our emotions are such an important piece of us. We're very, very slow to cut people off. We are. But in this life, Paul gives us instructions to say, look, when you see people causing this kind of damage, don't permit that because the family of God, the brothers and sisters, are so critical that when you see someone dividing, you root it out immediately. You bring it to attention, you make sure it doesn't last or linger. I just want to encourage us as a church. I've watched over the last two years, I've said this a number of times. Early on, when COVID hit and we suddenly weren't meeting in a room anymore, I learned something very important as a pastor. I was watching division grow among us. And it was so interesting. We, we weren't meeting on Sundays for two months when this all started, only doing live stream. We were cut off from each other. And all of a sudden, a lot of people were mad at me. <laughs> I was saying, I was like, how did this happen? What's going on right now? And then I get word that these people were in an argument, and these people were in an argument, and they were arguing with each other, and, and they were upset about something. I was saying, what is going on? How did that happen? And I suddenly realized it's very unhealthy for the people of God to not be around each other and how important this Sunday morning is of connecting, seeing each other, worshiping together, speaking to each other. I suddenly realized that that little time after a Sunday morning where I shake many of your hands and I say, oh man, good to see you. We have a little 30-second catch-up. Do you know how much actual physical healing takes place? Because if you were bitter towards me about something that I didn't even know about, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we're brothers. I forgot about that thing. (laughs) We heal that real quickly. And then we began coming back together again. And and all of a sudden, those issues seem to fade away. And we've been through a lot of things that could divide each other, haven't we? I mean, that list I gave you. I mean, I've seen some of the debates that we get in. I've been in, frankly, in the middle of a lot of them. It's tough conversations, there, these are diff- it's a difficult time to be a Christian, I'll tell you that. There's a lot of ideas we got to sort through. we got to have our Bibles open every day, and there's a lot of opinions out there. But can I just encourage you? Man, we're here. We've worked through this. And I think there's something very, very biblical about the way I've seen you fight for unity in the church. I'm proud of this church. I genuinely am. To watch a, a group of Christians disagree over big stuff and then determine to see the best in everybody and say, we're in, we're showing up, we're worshiping, we're going to do dinner together, we're going to do life together, we're going to forgive, we're going to ask for forgiveness. I've seen it. It's church, it's so beautiful. From my view, looking at this thing, it's incredible. There's also a specific sense which Paul gets after this. It's not just, not just general, there's a specific sense. Look at his actual words. Those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. The specific sense is that these dividers are looking at the true doctrine of the Word of God and they're saying, you know, I know pastors said this and I know you've heard it said of the Bible this, but actually, here's a different way to look at it. And I don't think that's correct. Now, here's what I want to say before we go any further there is a wonderful place of learning. This is a community where you can bring every question you have, and we will, one of our values as a church, just so you know, is cultural relevance. That's one of the reasons I speak into hard and sensitive subjects. We want to be a church that's not afraid to talk on the most difficult stuff that most people try to avoid. We try to talk about them and think about them in a biblical way. That's what, we do that intentionally at this church, so you're equipped to do it. There's a great place for asking hard questions. There's not a great place for coming in and intentionally sowing division and trying to steer people away from what the Bible teaches. In fact, in the Word of God, in the Bible, those people are oftentimes described as wolves in sheep's clothing, sneaking in, trying to steal people away. Do you know I have actually seen this a handful of times? I've seen groups that get together, they're studying the Bible together, and there's one person that jumps in, and it's like, they're, they're, you know, I'm not sure, like, he, Jesus is not actually the second person of the Trinity. And, and they just keep nagging on it. Jesus is not the second person on the Trinity. Or the Bible is not actually authoritative. It's a helpful book, but it's not authoritative. And week in, week out, they just keep coming back to you. You know what that is? It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I've had to have a lot of serious conversations with folks who do this. So what are these doctrines that we ought to know? People who are dividing, well, it's the whole book of Romans, Paul's recapping this and saying, Now look at what I've taught you, and you make sure you root those doctrines deep in your heart. Let's do a recap together. Book of Romans, ready? Romans chapter one through two. What did we learn? We learned about God's wrath against sin, and that everyone is held accountable for the knowledge that is planted in their heart as image bearers of God for God's wrath against them. Everybody is guilty. We learned about total depravity, chapters 3 to 4, important term. I hope you learned that one, and if not, let's go back, store this up in your heart. Total depravity says that we are so sinful, chapters 3 and 4, that no matter what we do, there's no way any of us could get to God on our own. All of our faculties are broken to such a degree that on our greatest day, we would never be able to reach out to God. But by Jesus reaching down to us, we are saved, not by works of our own. Chapter 5, we learned about Jesus, our new federalist head. Big words, but we can learn these things, church. Once Adam represented us, and he was a sinner, but now in faith in Jesus, Jesus represents us. And rather than being found guilty because Adam is our head, we're now found righteous because Jesus is our head. That's Romans chapter 5. Oh, I love Romans chapter 5. What about Romans chapter 6 and 7? As a result of faith, we're released from the shackles of the Old Testament ceremonial sacrificial law. We no longer have to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, not because sacrifices aren't required anymore. God's unchanging. But because Jesus is the final sacrifice and the final blood that was shed. We don't need to keep making any more sacrifices because the greatest sacrifice has been made and no more is needed. A sacrifice is required. Jesus is just it. Then chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Come on, I'm going I'm I'm to say verse 1. If you know it in your heart at this point, say it with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, many people say, is the most beautiful, important chapter in the entire Bible because it summarizes the gospel. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into the family of God and no one can separate that from you. You are in Christ, you are in God, and you are sealed by the work of Jesus Christ. And then you get to Romans chapter 9, that deep mystery of election. Oh man, God's amazing. The Father elected you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Before the foundations of the earth, He chose you by name who would be saved. We worked through that one. That was a tough doctrine, but it's biblical and we know our God and we worship him because we know the doctrine of election. Chapters 10 through 11, God's dealing with the church and answering the question of what about ethnic Israel? What about Jews? who had all the promises in the Old Testament. What about them now? Is Jesus their Messiah? And why don't so many of them believe? We know the answer to that, that there's a blinding that's come over their hearts, but one day it will be released, and they will accept Jesus in mass as well. These are the doctrines of the faith. And then chapters 12 through 15, how the gospel plays itself out in your life. We talked about Christian liberty. Remember that? The freedoms that we have. No one can bind our conscience except the word of God. Our consciences can only be bound by the word of God, but we're called to give up our rights to serve one another. These are the doctrines of the faith. Many of us have been feeding on spiritual baby milk pretty much our entire Christian life. And in this church, I want us to dig deeper. I don't want us to be content with baby food when it comes to the Christian doctrines. we got to know this book of Romans. We spent two years going through it. we got to seal it in our heart. Because here's what happens. When you know it, you can spot biblical heresy when you see it. How? Let me give you some practical things. I'm teaching the systematic theology class right now to our church. we got 200 people signed up for this thing. Do you know how cool that is? We're on week three this week. You can still get in if you want to. It's amazing. But two things I covered this week. Here's why you have to know doctrine. To to, to be able to spot wrong teaching when you hear it. Oftentimes I'll hear people send me a, a clip from Oprah or another spiritual leader, spiritual leader. And I'll get this clip that looks good. From the outside, it looks good. And then I run it through doctrine, and I say, not only is that not good, it's satanic. It's wrong. It's the opposite of good. But you won't be able to categorize good theology from bad theology, truths from falsehood, unless you know the doctrines of God. you, you got to know, you got to be able to interpret worship music. You know the songs we sing? You, you need to be able to spot what's a good worship song. And what if I hear a song on K-Love and I hear a lyric that's not quite right? It happens. There's a lot of songs we don't sing in this church that are popular. How are you going to be able to tell? It's only if you know the word of God. And you've got to look for divisions and dissenters that are coming in trying to draw you away. Church, you've been equipped. Your church has taken the time to go through this book slowly and equip you, okay? Final exhortation, number two. So first, watch out for dividers and dissenters. Number two, let your obedience be clear to everybody. Let your obedience be clear to everybody. Verses 19 to 20. For your obedience, here we go, is known to all. I didn't go too far to make this second point. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, there's something very powerful about a Christian who's not just a Christian in word. But you look at their life and you say, their life is a life of obedience to the things they say they believe. They've they've got a ministry of the word and then they've got a ministry of life being lived out. And there's this evenness to their life that's very compelling. They're really doing it. And when you look at a church, a group of people, and you just say, their life reflects the actual gospel they say they believe, they're really doing it. I read a quote recently, someone put this on Twitter, it was very compelling, it was a non-Christian commenting on Christians. He said this, he said, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. This is a non-Christian. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Talk about conviction. Let the world see a Christian who's wholly devoted to Jesus Christ. I think it was D.L. Moody who once said, If the Lord Jesus told me to jump out this window right now, I'd do it. (laughs) The world's got to see just one man, one woman, who will do anything that Jesus Christ tells him to do. He'll go to the farthest corners of the earth if Jesus so much as hints at going there. Drop it all, leave it all. I know I was going that direction. I'm being obedient to Jesus. The world needs one of those people, maybe two. And if we get a church of them, I'll tell you what, the world's ready for a shaking. Let the world see your obedience because the Christian life is so salty, it's so different. But what we do is we, we, we bring in all the world's values and we slowly water down obedience. And rather than obeying Christ, we end up obeying secular culture and their ideologies and their value system and adding Jesus onto it. Be wholly devoted to Christ. Obedience to Jesus is not popular and looks pretty weird to an outsider Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, a verse I have to tell myself regularly. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. To follow Christ is to be a fool in the eyes of the world. To really do it. To really do it. You've got permission in the eyes of the world right now to be a Christian in private. To be a Christian in public, you don't have permission for that. His advice here is really important. He says, uh, what does he say? He says, uh, They should not, I'm sorry, where's my passage here? He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus had a way of saying things with a a harshness that was very real. Notice the Bible does not say to be ignorant of what is evil. It doesn't say be ignorant to evil, it says be innocent towards evil. Those are two very different things. Christians are not called to be naive to the workings of the world around us. We're not called to go through the world like this, right? I I can't, I I have to just, right? There was actually a group of Pharisees in in, in Jesus' day called the bloody Pharisees. You know why? They were so afraid of walking and seeing sin or looking at a woman and lusting in some way that they would literally cover their eyes when they walked down the street to the point that they would often walk into brick and stone walls and cause their forehead to bleed and blood on their forehead was a sign of honor. (laughs) Look how devoted he is. He's going to cut himself off and, and literally not see anything. Now in some ways, there's a beautiful aspect to a desire to honor God with that much courage. But in another way, the Bible doesn't say to be ignorant to evil. It just says to be holy in the midst of it. We have to be aware of evil that's taking place around us. We have to be able to label it and see it and think through it and critically analyze it. And that work takes a community. We live in a day where there's a hundred philosophies telling us how we should process every problem in the world. Political philosophies, secular philosophies... Every type of philosophy is saying, here's the problem, here's how you solve it. Here's the problem, here's how you solve it. The Christian doesn't just say, okay, thanks for that, I'm going to now adopt it. The Christian says, what does the Bible say on this topic? Evil is there, how do I look at it? One of the problems I see in our day is that I think we have a tendency of flirting with evil. We have a tendency of saying, here's my boundary, and I'm going to push up to there, (laughs) as close as I can get to it, and enjoy evil as much as I physically can, and, and, and think that I'm going to do, do Jesus right on that. But when we do that, we flirt with disaster. I see this in so many areas of our life. I, in the amount of alcohol we consume, in the boundaries we do or do not set in our dating, in the images we look at on our computers, in the thoughts we think in our head, in the movies and the TV shows we watch each week. Am I touching on anything sensitive for anybody here? We flirt with disaster. We flirt with it. And I don't want Romans to go by without us seriously asking the question, am I truly being obedient or am I flirting with disobedience? Think in the Bible, there's a man named Solomon, King Solomon. Many of you don't know the end of Solomon's life. Solomon was David's son. David was a man after God's own heart. God used Solomon in tremendous ways. He had one of the greatest kingdoms in the Old Testament. Solomon was wiser than any king. Nations would flock to Israel just to meet Solomon because they heard about how wise he was. You know what happened in the second half of his life? He flirted with disaster. Listen to this. 1 Kings chapter 11 verses 1 to 2 Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to them in love. And his wives turned away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. This is what happens when you flirt with evil. You are being tempted. The Super Bowl's next Sunday. And what you're going to be bombarded with is a halftime show, which if it's anything like the last seven halftime shows, will be disgusting. And you will be asked to think it's normal. You will be asked to think... This is what is normal for people to celebrate at the halftime show of a competition. I, because there's children in the room, I won't repeat what the last four or five of them have been. You will be bombarded with commercials, which will tell you how to think in a way that you'll be asked to say, that's normal. And you'll be asked to slowly just let your guard down. And Christian, I just want to tell you, it's not normal. Normal is what it, is written in God's word, the doctrines in the book of Romans that we've studied for the last two years. And I want my mind to be clearly, clearly fixated in saying, that's not normal, this is. This works. I want to be a Christian that lives on this. You got to look for it. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. (laughs) That's good news, right? Here's what it means. It means that you will see victory in your life. You don't go through life in the same place. You don't get to like third grade level in Christianity and then you live the next 40 years of your life in the same place. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet and you will move past it. You will get past sins. You will always have levels of sin in your life but you won't be the same all your life because you're growing. You're learning and maturing. Praise God for that. Final exhortation number three and let me finish on this. I'm already going long. May may God get all the glory. May God get all the glory. God is about His glory. God is about His glory. You say, isn't that narcissistic? No, narcissism is when people who don't actually have glory try to steal glory for themselves. God actually has glory and when He demands glory for Himself, we as those whom he has created have a desire and an obedience in bringing him glory. He is the sun which the all the planets rotate around and find their heat. Without the glory of the sun this planet fades away. Without the glory of Jesus Christ sitting on his throne, through whom and around whom the angels constantly say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of what? Your glory. Better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than a servant anywhere else, the heart of the Christian. Why? Because his glory is what I live for. And God's primary work that he's doing in this world right now is he is drawing glory and bringing glory to himself. And we live as glory stealers all the time. That is the essence of sin is glory stealing. We try to find ourselves right. We try to make ourselves right. We try to defend ourselves in front of everybody else. We try to determine which way we're going to go with our life and and determine how we're going to handle conflict. And we determine how we're going to prove ourselves over someone else. We make our ambitions for our careers the central driver of our life. Glory stealing, glory stealing, all the while the angels constantly sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. Christian, I want you to wrap up this book of Romans and say, my life is for one thing. It's for the glory of God. Whatever that means, I'm learning, I'm on a track. Jesus has a hold of my life. His death was a forgiveness for my sins, his blood shed for me, and now I've got one ambition. To bring glory to the God of the Bible. That's it, whatever the cost. Today is the celebration of remembering the life of Charles Spurgeon. And I want to close out the book of Romans by reading the very last words Charles Spurgeon ever preached. He passed away on this day, I don't know how many years ago it was. Charles Spurgeon is known as the prince of preachers. Perhaps the greatest preacher that ever lived. Here are his final preached words, which I'm going to leave you as we wrap up the book of Romans. I want you to meditate on these this week. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the livery of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains, There never was like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you will always find it in him. These forty years and more have I served him. Blessed be his name. And I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if so it pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, seal this in our hearts. Jesus, don't let us leave the book of Romans without being captured by the beauty of how it points us to Jesus. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.